Hey, everybody, welcome to the podcast. And uh, we're going to have a great conversation today about changing how we lead. There's, uh, I got introduced to Alain Hunkins. Alain, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, John. It's a delight to be here with you today. Thank you. And I'm looking at a lot on uh, video, everybody, and there's this amazing, beautiful, like red painted wall behind them and this really cool style. And Alain, you tell me that you and the whole family just picked up and you moved and you're living in the Netherlands. Yeah, we're living in the city called Leiden. It's just south of Amsterdam. So yeah, you're looking at this wonderful Dutch architecture that's not mine, but we're renting it and we're having a great family experience while we're here. It's definitely, if you want to expand your mind, moving abroad is a great way to do it. You know, it really is. I got to live in Japan for a couple of years, um, but it's a big jump, man. It's a big leap leaving here to do that. But hey, just real, everybody real quick. So here's what we're talking about today, because I think it's important. A lot got introduced to me and had written a book called Cracking the Leadership Code, Three Secrets to Building Strong Leaders. And when I first looked at what you were doing, I just felt like there was so much alignment between what we're doing here at Eternal Leadership and what you're doing. And you're talking about this model of connection, communication, collaboration. But what I really understood this to be is actually changing how we lead, right? Changing the leadership culture is changing how we teach leadership and a lot of us have these huge blind spots we don't understand how to lead well because we've actually never been shown how to lead well and i think it's so important and right now as uh, we've gone through this period with coronavirus and covid and we can talk about this too a little bit along there's a lot of things i think that were accelerated trends awarenesses new habits there are things that we should not let go that we should actually embrace. And I think going back to a new normal should not be the goal. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. And before we jump into this, this is going to be a great conversation. I'd love for you, but you know, we were going back and forth and boy, you have quite a family history that I'm sure has profoundly impacted who you are and how you see the world. And I'd love for you to share a little bit about that. Oh, I'm happy to, John. Thanks. So, yeah, I've been asked, you know, why did you write this book? Why are you interested in this subject? So I think a lot of it has to do with my somewhat unique upbringing. So I was raised by a single mom and my grandmother, which that part is not particularly unique. But what's unique about them is the fact that they are both Holocaust survivors. My mother was born in 1935. And from the age of seven until she was 10, she was actually separated from her mom and put in hiding through the Belgian underground. So for three years, they didn't spend any time together. And then my grandmother was actually arrested and she ended up in a holding concentration camp, which was, she was number 181 on the list. And I've actually seen this, they have archives of these lists, this paper list where she was on the next transport train that was scheduled to go to Auschwitz. And she was liberated before that train ever left. So they were reunited after the war. And if she hadn't been liberated, you probably would have never known her, I'm guessing. Oh, exactly. Exactly. I would wow. have never known her. And a lot of the rest of the family was killed. And as you can imagine, that completely shaped and changed their worldview. So I literally was brought up with sentences like, don't ever share more information than anyone ever asks of you, right? Because that was the world. They had grown up being literally being hunted for their lives and trying to navigate the insanity of that war and what was going on. And so I had this one very 
intense experience of being at home with my brother and my mother and my grandmother. But then I'd be out at school, like regular American school growing up in the 1970s, and it felt, it seemed so different. You know, like you know, the old one of these things is not like the other, right? It was so <laughs> different from each other. And I think I was trying to figure out why was it that my grandmother and my mother, and, and of course, none of this was talked about at the time. It was a felt experience. And it wasn't until I got older and I started getting interested in psychology, which I started studying in, in college and started realizing, wow, like, what motivates and drives human behavior? So that's what really got me passionate about trying to help people is realizing that, you know, some people came out of their Holocaust experience and had incredible lives that were robust and they felt this need to empower people around them. That wasn't my grandmother's experience. My grandmother was basically, mm -hmm. we would have diagnosed her with chronic depression. She had a, that PTSD experience. And so I look at how is it that two people can go through similar experiences and yet be shaped and have such a different response to them. So I guess for me, leadership is very much about how can we as leaders create an experience that people can optimally thrive. And when I say leader, I'm not talking about just the job title and a position. It's really a state of mind and it's a belief because anytime that we're interacting with other people and trying to accomplish something in the world, we're leading. And so recognizing that. So that's sort of where I come from and how I got into this work in the first place. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting having just, you know, gone what we've come through and a lot of, you know, the culture, a lot of people we're leading right now have never really been through anything that even probably felt like adversity. And I'm just thinking about your mom and your grandmother's experience relative to what we just went through, right? It changes probably the context of things. So question for you, you know, as you're helping other people lead Right. Understanding people's different backgrounds or different experiences across the different generations. Is there anything you would learn from your mom or your grandmother that maybe helped you connect better with different people? Oh, I think so. I think one of the things, it's funny, my mom, she actually went off to work as a single mom. She started as a waitress working for an executive cafeteria for a business food service company. Later on, she actually got promoted and she became uh, an assistant manager and then a manager of a cafeteria. And I actually got a job along my first summer jobs were working in the dish room, washing pots in the cafeteria, you know, making five bucks an hour. I remember this for a couple of years. And one of the things that I learned from my mother was just the importance of treating everyone as a person. So I was elbow to elbow with other folks in the dish room and they were my peers. And, it, you know, they happened to be Haitian immigrants, but they were people. Like, and so this whole sense of how do you treat other people? Because at its core, leadership isn't a job title. It isn't a position. Leadership is a relationship. And the quality of that relationship is based on the quality of connection that you have with somebody else. And I'm sure you're familiar with the idea, John, that a lot of people do when they are interviewing somebody for a new job, they might go out for an interview lunch and they watch mm -hmm. to see how do they treat the wait staff, right? Because how you treat anyone is how you treat everyone. And so you know, I always did that a lot. And, you know, one <laughs> of the things I did for my final hires for anybody that was going to be in a leadership role, I always went to dinner with them with my wife and their spouse. Mm -hmm. And I would watch the dynamic and my wife had incredible intuition. And there was, there was a few people you saw because they were either they were trying to impress you, their ego wasn't in the right spot. And 
there was people that we did not hire because of how they treated their spouse or the wait staff, or, you know, we'd always get there early and just kind of watch because when you're bringing somebody on your team, right? I got some great advice early on. You got to hire slowly and fire quickly. When you find somebody that's really out of alignment with your culture, doesn't mean they're a bad person, but that's going to cause problems. And this is one of the things my boss had me do is hire slowly. So you didn't have to move people out. But yeah, I, I totally agree with you. We have like, wouldn't it be great if everybody was the same at home, you know, at Starbucks with the barista who's having a bad day or with their, you know, the CEO of the company, that's where we need to help people get to. So they're just, they're so comfortable with who they are. They don't show up with a mask on in different situations. As a leader, that's what I've always wanted to help my people move toward. That's a great point, John. You know, we talked earlier about the sense of, you know, the importance, particularly now, of connection and communication and collaboration. And by the way, those are the secrets of the subtitle of the book. And in some ways, you could look at those and identify and isolate those as certain skills. But even before you get into the skills of being a better connector or communicator or collaborator, it's taking that step back and really understanding what's the mindset that takes to lead. And I think what you're talking about is what we're looking for in those interview dinners is how does that mindset show up? Because ultimately, if I and so many leaders still suffer from this, is so many leaders have this idea that, oh, I'm the leader. It's my job to tell people what to do. And there's that little bit or a lot bit of this power and this ego that basically it's the old industrial age mindset that I'm the brains, you're the brawn. I tell mm. you what to do. Your job is to shut up and do it. And it's funny because that just, if you have and carry that mindset out, it will leak. It will leak into your behavior. It will keep you from listening to people fully. It will start to have you prejudge, oh, this person is fill in the blank here, therefore they couldn't do this, right? And so we have to recognize that what is the mindset? And so this is why self-awareness is that first competency of emotional intelligence because mm -hmm. we can't start to relate to other people until we really have a better understanding of ourselves and how we think and how we're wired and how we respond to things. And that takes work. And let's say, frankly, if you've been getting along and doing pretty well in your life, why would you stop and do that work? Because it's difficult and you have to be humble and realize, I want to keep growing and developing. So I think for me, that's the starting point to any kind of path of leadership development. It's the willingness to hold up the mirror to yourself. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, somebody asked me the other day, Alon, my clients that have made the most progress, and maybe I'd love to have you kind of weigh in on this too. What are some of the things that they have done personally to be able to become so much more effective. And as I thought about that, what I found was, to your point that you just made, the clients that I've worked with that have taken time to slow down to figure out really who they are, you know, what habits that they have, why they think the way that they do, be able to take some feedback that might not be comfortable about how they're showing up in the world, and then be willing to put in the hard work, you know, to become aware of that and then to manage that and change that so that they're more effective. And what I found was that the results are stunning. And so sometimes as leaders, you have to realize you have to slow down in order to be able to speed up. Because in this Mach 5 hyper 
caffeinated, crazy world that we live in right now, if we don't take time to slow down, because I love something you have in your book, right? Old school leaders are going to flounder in this new school world. And guess what? If we don't figure out how to lead as things are changing, we are absolutely going to get swept by. But have you noticed anything in people you've worked with, teams or organizations that have maybe facilitated some growth from your perspective successfully? Oh, for sure. Yes. And I think, John, what you're saying around things that lead to that growth, the importance of slowing down and becoming aware, because so many people are really smart at the task they're trying to accomplish. I mean, mm. technically, they know what they're trying to do. But when they slow down, I've got clients who are now taking time to really, as a team, check in with each other. And they do tons of postmortems, you know, after action reviews, giving and receiving honest feedback. Because the fact is, when we slow down, what we can start to do is we get out of content, living at the surface level of content but we can go deep below the surface and look at the process. Because you know what, we're gonna have a different customer tomorrow and a different customer issue, but some of the actual deep themes are gonna be the same. And so I see it's the clients and the people I coach who are start to recognize the patterns of how they tend to show up in mm -hmm. the same way each time, they're the ones who benefit from slowing down because they realize they're actually learning a ton and they can apply what they're learning in any new situation. And that's what lets them accelerate and grow their performance later on. You know, lots of people are smart, but they've got to understand it's the people side that they have to start to investigate more deeply. Yeah. And one of the things that you talk about quite a bit is leading with empathy. Yeah. And I think a lot of the people maybe we define as maybe the more old school leaders right? They're a little more maybe directive or command control. They know that they should be probably taking more time to develop their people, but it doesn't seem efficient. So they're, yeah. they're more directive. That's yeah. a whole nother conversation because I can prove to you how developing and equipping your people can just free up massive bandwidth and allow you to work in your strengths. But I love this whole topic of empathy that you bring up. And I think a lot of time it gets misunderstood that it's almost seems like soft or well, how about this? When you talk about leading with empathy, you said there's some incredible, some massive benefits to understanding that approach. I'd love for you to share a little bit about that. Sure. So first of all, let's define what empathy is, like the yeah. basic definition. So empathy is showing people that you understand them. That's their perspective, which is an intellectual thing, skill. And then it's also about basically caring how they feel. So that's the affective or emotional part. So that's how we define empathy. Now, yeah, it can sound kind of touchy-feely and all that soft stuff. And, you know, what's the point? Well, the fact is there's three massive benefits to leading with empathy. The first one is that empathy is the basis of trust. And when people don't feel trusted, they're not going to speak up. They're not going to share their insights. They're not going to share their ideas. And they're going to withhold. And they're only going to bring a part of themselves to work. I mean, we've probably all seen the major studies on employee engagement. And that usually hovers somewhere between 70 to 80% of the workforce is disengaged. They're not fully engaged. Well, guess what? Why would I ever fully engage if I don't have that basic relationship of trust? And trust boils down to the relationship that I have with my immediate supervisor, right? It's that one-on-one -on -one relationship. And so recognizing that first, empathy builds trust. And without that, you're not gonna get a whole lot else. 
So that's the first big benefit of empathy. The second one is that when you have empathy, you get insights from people because you've already built the trust. People feel compelled to want to share things that could be of help because they go, oh, you might want this because this could really move us forward in this direction. So that's the second one. Right? Yeah, and people are going to want to help you as their boss, their manager, their leader, because they like you. Exactly. And they want to exactly. see you do well. And guess exactly. what? You know, I was asking somebody the other day, what would it look like in your company where people were excited to come into work on Monday? Like, what is missing that that is not the case right now? Yeah. You know, and one of the things that he landed on that I thought was really self-aware was, you know what? I would want to show up at a place where I'm working with friends. I'm excited to go to a place with friends and the relationships we have with you know, each other on our teams, that level of trust, you know, sharing insights, helping each other succeed is not there right now. And then that became the focus of the work that we did from his insight. And I thought that was really a powerful insight that he had had in that moment. Oh, that's a great insight. I mean, that, that reminds me of being, I was on a team where I had a really great friend on the team. And if that friend would ask me to do something, I would mm. jump through hoops to help them out, right? right? Whereas yeah. somebody else would ask me something, uh, you know, I'm not so sure. I'm a little busy. I'm all, you know, I like the impulse, right? As soon, if it's a friend, someone like that I know has my back and cares about me, my level of effort just goes up incredibly. Yeah. yeah so the, and then the third, the third big benefit to leading with empathy is that empathy creates innovation. If we think about innovation at its core is about being able to generate new ideas that translate into value for either you or your customers. And so when you have that basis of empathy, you create a climate that supports people sharing those ideas. And if you don't, you know, anyone have any ideas? Anyone, anyone, right? <laughs> it's not going to happen. And so, you know, it builds trust, it builds insight, and it builds innovation. And so the power of it. Now, I think a lot of leaders think, oh, but it takes more time. But it goes back to what you said earlier, John, is, yeah, you got to slow down, got to build those relationships before you can get into task. I always let tell my clients, you know, put relationship before task. Otherwise, you're working in that industrial age mindset of you're seeing your people as these boxes to tick off a list, right? They're just cogs in the machine. They're just human resources, you know, which is a funny term, right? It still dates back to the industrial age. These are just little human resources we have. So we can't think of people as spare parts that we just move around in the cogs of our machine. We have to recognize that all of them are these people with these rich emotional lives. And it's not that you need to be a psychologist, it's you have to realize it's emotions that drive our behavior. And so what you need to be is an empathic person. Yeah. And, you know, as we've gone through this recent period, he was running a CEO of a big manufacturing company. They had to convert everything over because of the Defense Production Act. Yeah. And I said, well, how are your people doing? So here's what he, what he shared was, hey, you know, they're figuring out how to, you know, do the shifts to get this done. And this is how a road, everything was on basically an operational and transactional type summary of how his people doing. Yeah. I'm like, okay, yeah, but how are your people doing? Right. You know, these people that have to come into work, do they have somebody at home who's immunocompromised? You know, are they living with their grandma? Is their wife freaking out because they have to leave the house every day to come into work? And there was no awareness of any of that. I mean, this is a newer client, but 
you know, you could probably guess what is the level of relationship and trust on a team like that. And this is a perfect time for us to come up and maybe I'd love your insights along. What is maybe some things that we've learned through going through this period of time that we should really maybe keep and build on, even though going through this last, you know, six months has been hard. Yeah, no, and there's nothing like a crisis to reveal like the importance of humanity. And so one of the big things is, you know, first of all, like we're saying is starting with connection is understanding that taking the time to know people at a personal level doesn't mean you need to know their deepest, darkest secrets, don't need to be their best friend, but just to know some basic things about so that way you can support them so they can bring more themselves to work. And that's such a key thing for us to be aware of right now. And the other thing too is this is a time for us to be checking in more frequently. You know, that fact is everyone's isolated now. And the fact is, if we Mm -hmm. have built a relationship that's built on empathy and trust, and when we're checking in, and I like to make a difference between checking in and checking on, right? We're not trying to check on people, check up. And you can't micromanage from a distance and you shouldn't micromanage in person anyway. But realizing when I'm checking in, I'm basically creating this quick opportunity to see, A, how you're doing and how can I support you? And that can change from day to day. You know, I feel like so many leaders think that, oh, my people are empowered. And so they just abdicate, you know, and this is not a time to abdicate communication. Mm -hmm. This is a time to lean in and to recognize that that's the work of leadership. It's the constant back and forth going, what can I do to support people? So connecting and communicating on a more frequent basis is important, as well as a lot of, you know, we're talking about innovation before in this time of this pandemic, I'm amazed at how creative and innovative and resilient so many people have had to be to pivot and shift. And I think some beautiful lessons are coming out of this. I mean, so many sacred cows have been killed in the last month or two. I'll give you an example. I've got a client and he works in the cargo shipping business. And for literally since the Roman times, the cargo shipping business has required people to have a hand-signed paper bill of lading. It's called a bill of lading, which is basically your whole list of cargo. And it's just a tradition. You had to do this. Well, guess what? In a week, instantly, guess what? Electronic signatures are fine because necessity is the mother of invention. And gosh, she's been working overtime in the maternity room lately. So I think this idea that everyone could be the repository of great ideas is how are we going to go back when I say go back to work, we have to find what I'll call the new, new normal. Because I think a lot of people are finding the new normal right now working from home, but hopefully we'll get to this new, new normal. And that new, new normal should be a place where ideas are welcome and that leaders should see themselves less as directors and much more as facilitating ideas from where they are to where they need to be so we can creatively solve the problems for ourselves, our organizations, and ultimately our customers and our world around us. Well, I love what you just said too there, being a facilitator versus a director. Because there's a lot of people, you ask them, hey, what do I need to be doing now as a leader? Well, it's a communicate, communicate, communicate. And what I think what a lot of people do is they're actually now over-communicating, but they don't actually understand what good communication looks like, what the team needs, how to balance the communication between the relationship and, you know, getting some of the work done. I'd Love for you to share your thoughts and your advice on that. And I can share a couple ideas too. 
Sure. Yeah. So certainly, yeah, there's a big difference between being a director and a facilitator. And this idea of a lot of people, again, old school leadership think, oh, communicate. That means I need to speak. I need to, you know, have more PowerPoints and more, more bullet points. More meetings. Yeah. More meetings. More Zoom meetings. (laughs) Yeah. No, exactly. And this is, again, I think part of the problem is the fact that a lot of people just don't, they haven't seen this modeled. It's really hard to do something well if you've never had any experience of either seeing it or doing it yourself. But I think the first thing is understanding that people are way more engaged if you, what I'll call, use a pull strategy instead of a push strategy. So it's, you know, Stephen Covey talked about it with, right, seek first to understand, then to be understood. So it's that sense of what are you doing? What kind of repertoire of great questions do you have to ask people around, you know, for example, beyond the how are you feeling today, like the emotional empathic level, is it what's the biggest challenge you're facing at work right now, right? It's a big, juicy, open-ended question that people can sink their teeth into. And then the challenge for me as a leader is to basically ask the question and then shut up and listen, right? Which for a lot of us is hard because our egos are going, we're thinking this is going to take too much time or I have the answer already. You know, we don't want to step into giving advice. We want people to come up with solutions on their own as much as possible. And so I would start with some really broad, open-ended questions. You know, that doesn't mean that we can go everywhere with a conversation, but let's see, are people already on task with my agenda? And if they are, great. And if not, then I've earned the right to steer the conversation because I've shown that I'm listening to you before I add in my two cents in terms of what I think we need to do and focus on. So that's a key piece is really to listen and create a two-way dialogue of communication. Another key piece is if we're discussing something as we're finishing up, what are we doing to confirm what actions are coming out of this conversation? So many of us have had the experience of being in a meeting and we're discussing a bunch of ideas Meeting ends and we all go off on our own and say, I think this is what so-and-so is doing. I think, is that what they said they're doing? And we don't know. And sometimes we have those meetings after the meetings. We used to have them in the hallway, mm-hmm. right? But realizing that another thing that's really useful in this time and when we're all working remotely is we need to be very explicit and overt about each step that we're committing to and that we should err on the side of over-clarification than under-clarification. Because what we tend to do is think, oh, we're a bunch of adults, everyone knows what to do. Well, maybe, maybe not. So in the book, I talk about this technique, I call it asking for a receipt. So if you think about receipts are proof of a completed transaction. Anytime you go to the store, you, you get a receipt, it's proof that you bought something. So in conversation or communication, asking for a receipt is basically confirming that what was said is actually what was meant and what was heard. Because really easy for those three things to not be in alignment. So between two-way communication and asking for a receipt, those are a couple of really specific things that people can start to apply to become more effective communicating right now. Yeah, that's true. In an environment like this, the potential for missing expectations, because a lot of us have never really worked. I've been managing remote teams since 9-11 happened. We were forced into it. And then we got back to in the office as quick as we could. Mm -hmm. Uh, We did a lot of travel. But it is different, right? And I agree with you. So at the end of all my meetings, we always go around and say, okay, what did everybody commit to by when? Hey, Alon, is there anything you need help from me or anybody else on the team? Are there any dependent events? Is there something you need from outside this team, from a customer, a vendor, for you to be able to get that done in time? And it doesn't take a lot of time. 
And we always have somebody kind of document that and just shoot it out as like a summary email. And I got to tell you, that has saved us more conflict and more headache, that extra step that takes about five minutes. And I got to tell you, a lot, often, even though I think where our team communicates really well, there's like, no, no, that's not what I agreed to. That's not what I said. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah, exactly. And then, you know, just think about this too. I think, you know, those meetings, you know, when you start is such a great way to kind of build also some relationships. Instead of just saying, hey, how is everybody? Because our typical, I know my type of, hey, I'm good, I'm fine even though I'm yeah. not, yeah. right? But, you know, think of some other ways to open that meeting. Hey, either, hey, how are you guys showing up today? Or do a two-word check-in. Or, hey, how's life? Tell me something going on in your world, your life that you'd like to share. Because that also gets people to pull in things from their family. You know, hey, just share that, hey, I'm sitting here at home. And I have mm -hmm. my three boys, my daughter-in-law, and my grandson. So being able to stay focused sometimes has been really hard because usually – you know, I'm in an office environment. And just knowing that about different people on your team just starts to build those relationships and just change the, I guess, the nature of the communication too, because we have to get to the business at some point, but we have to flip it on its head and make the, I believe, the relationships more important. And that is something I want to see change permanently as we move through this. As you say that, John, it reminds me of the fact that, you know, I think a lot of leaders think, oh, is it that important? Well, if you look at the neuroscience and mm. the way our brains are wired, so the general model is that there's these three parts of the brain, right? So there's the logical, rational part of the brain we call the neocortex. And then we've got these older parts of the brain, the limbic or emotional part of the brain, as well as the reptilian part of the brain. And the reason that it's so important for us to check in with people, like you just said, John, is that when we can actually settle kind of, if you kind of mm -hmm. use this analogy, I use this of a snow globe, right? Like if you shake up a snow globe, it's got all this snow floating all over the place. And the only way to get a snow globe to settle is to put it down and give it a space. It's such a rest. And by you checking in with the team and saying, so what's it like working at home? That gives people the opportunity to let that snow globe mind settle. And so they're not quite so frantic, which then frees up cognitive resources to be able to focus on the task, which is why when we say put relationship before task, neurologically, that's actually what's going on for people to recognize. And I think a lot of clients and people I've coached, sharing that model with them really helps because then they realize, oh, that's why I do what I do, because that's how we're wired. You know, you can't argue with biology. I mean, you can, but you'll lose every time. <laughs> so it's just understanding that, you know, what can I do to make sure that people are more settled before we go into whatever job or task we need to accomplish? Yeah. And it's, you know, it's simple, you know, asking questions and then also just asking people, what do you think we should be focusing on today? You know, I, what I do a lot is show up with my agenda for the meeting. So I do, I welcome people. I affirm people. I want to always model that. I have my agenda, but then I ask people, hey, what are you thinking? What questions do you have? What's on your mind? Now, that doesn't mean I'm going to change my agenda, but sometimes somebody might bring something up. I go, okay, we're going to make a pivot here. That needs to be the focus of the meeting. Or I know what everybody's thinking. And if I go around and say, hey, you know what? That's not really, the whole team doesn't need to hear about that. But as soon as we're done, you and I are going to talk about that. We're going to get that problem solved. And guess what? Now, they, like you said, they can be present and focused to serve their whole team versus being concerned about that one thing. Yeah. And what I love about what you just said too, John, is in you facilitating that and pivoting and shifting the agenda to what's important versus whether who came up with it 
you're also modeling a very powerful leadership behavior, which is basically you're putting the needs of the overall mission first, as opposed to the needs of my ego or my agenda first. Yeah. And how important that is for us to do as leaders. You know, a theme that comes out time and time again, and if you coach anyone, you work with them, you lead them, you see that ultimately at the core of great leadership is the mindset that it's not about me, it's about you, right? It's not about me as a leader, it's about the people that I'm serving. That if we flip that pyramid or the org chart on its head, it's the reason I'm in the leadership role is to help the people that I'm serving or leading to be their best. And when yeah. they thrive- and to, and, they, and to help them succeed. Yeah, because when they succeed, guess what? I just succeeded, right? My results are predicated on the results of them. So I got to think of myself as a helper, first and foremost. Yeah, I remember one of my first bosses was in the military, my commanding officer. And he always said, a rising tide lifts all boats. He wanted us, his entire leadership culture that he created, I was very fortunate to have outstanding leadership in one of my first you know, roles outside of college was that you help everybody else succeed without worrying about taking credit. And guess what? We are going to absolutely rock it. We're going to have a blast. And it's hard work. It's dangerous work that we were doing. And we did. It was a phenomenal experience. And then immediately after that person, we had another commanding officer came in that was the opposite, complete command control, led literally by intimidation and fear. That was his chosen leadership style. And that's something else that we can do if we actually go back and think about some of those people that we loved working for, working with, being mentored by, and just say, hey, are there some things that they did that I could bring into, right? That It's about that self-awareness. again. Can I bring that into who I am and how I lead? You might need to work with somebody like a law, a coach, somebody to come in and help you facilitate, because some of this change is hard. I'll be honest yeah, with you. Is. I've had to work at it. So, you know, with that said, you know, We've been talking about a lot of these different aspects. You work with very large companies all over the world. I forgot to mention that when we started from Walmart and Pfizer and Citigroup and GE, IBM. And Alon's the one who convinced IBM to stop wearing suits and red ties. Is that true? No, oh, yeah, that was me. <laughs> Good man. <laughs> but here's a question for you, right? As we're moving into kind of a new, I think, way to operate in this world, right? We're focusing on relationships. I think the people just naturally through this are going to be more of a priority. We still have to get the work done. Now, what that means is, because we talked a little bit about communication, but now where this all kind of, where I kind of see it all coming together is when we're not together in the same room or part of our team, I think maybe even permanently is not all together at the same time. What are some things that we can do to really improve how we work together collaborate, innovate, you know, some of those things that now feel like I'm almost having to recreate this a little bit because things are different. Great question, John. So I think in terms of how are we going to collaborate in this new, new, new normal of work mm -hmm. is going back to some fundamentals. And the fact is humans have certain needs that need to be met in order for them to thrive and perform at their best. And in fact, I talk about this, the whole last part of the book is all around this collaboration, these four needs. So the fact is all of us have this need for safety. Mm. And so we talked about that a little bit already in terms of, you know, quieting the snow globe head to create that psychological safety as well as, you know, physical safety. Obviously, people need that as well. So there's a need for safety. There's also a need for energy. The fact is a lot of us are having these Zoom meetings now. 
And it's funny, I have a 16 year old son and I can hear him, he's a video gamer, right? And he will scream, scream at his laptop when it's getting what they call laggy, right? Laggy is like when the internet is all laggy. And a lot of us- my, my kids are the same. You're like, oh, they said the lag, the lag is terrible, right? Well, a lot of us suffer from laggy meetings, Zoom meetings, and it isn't the internet that's lagging, it's the facilitation of it. It's again, we have to understand that people have a need for energy and that you know, the first day on a job or first day as a team, it's a honeymoon phase. And then people want us to succeed. So what are things that we can put in place to make sure that people are energized, whether they're working co-located or remote? There's things that we can do. For example, something as simple as, are we making sure that we're not doing a two-hour Zoom meeting? That's crazy. I mean, are you taking a break every 70 minutes? Because it's really hard to stay focused on a screen. So give people 10 minutes. Again, it's that go slow to go fast moment. Yeah, you know, know, something about meetings, and you just nailed it, because what I've observed, because people are trying to figure it out, but it's this giant meeting stew, and it's everything thrown in the pot. I'm going to do my check-ins, we're going to cast the vision, we're going to do our strategic stuff, then we're going to do our tactical stuff, and then we're going to go through deal flow, and then we're going to do our checkout. I'm like, guys, stop it. Hey, you know what? As a leader, here's what I'm telling my folks. Go schedule a five or 10-minute call with each of your folks in the morning, yes, every single one of them, even though you got crazy stuff to do and just check in with them, not about the work, but about them personally. Then if you want to do a certain meeting, maybe it's a project planning meeting, a higher level meeting, have that meeting at the end of the meeting, sign off of your Zoom room, go give them a 15 minute break to go say hi to the kids, go get a cup of coffee, use the bathroom, then you come back in and then maybe do the tactical part, the implementation. But I think there's some little things you can do there to focus the conversation and make sure people are the best you can are showing up present and with some energy. But yeah, a two hour Zoom meeting sitting here, I'm, my legs would go numb. <laughs> oh yeah, no, completely. I have to realize too, as leaders, meetings are our chance. That's leadership in action. Like how mm-hmm. we lead our meetings, that's our leadership. So if we're thinking, oh, I'm just trying to get through this. It's like, talk about you know, just having people be in a disengaged coping mentality. It's like, if you're thinking I have to check off the boxes on my agenda, no one wants to be a box to be checked off. And so what am I doing to engage people? Does everyone actually need to even be here for what we're talking about? So often you have these people who are just stuck on like, oh, if I sign off, is that rude? How does that seem? Right? So we have to find these needs to satisfy people's need for energy. Oh, Alan, I just had a thought, right? So Let's say that I'm in a meeting with you and you do it really well, Mm -hmm. right? And I'm one of your direct reports. Yeah. And now I'm going to go run a meeting with my team. I'm going to model it based on what you just showed me. And I'm probably not going to do it as well. But if I'm just phoning it in and I can't wait to get through it and I'm the leader, what do you think those meetings look like? Especially if you have a larger organization, two and three levels down. So not horrible. Oh my goodness. I love that insight for me that I'm going to be sharing with some of my clients because you know what, what you're modeling and how you're running meetings is going to be how everybody else does it. And they're not going to probably do it as well. It's something you're going to probably even have to spend some time on with your folks, even training them on in this environment, aren't we? Oh, completely, completely. I mean, like I like to say the fact that we're all having to do this remotely now, it's like all of those leadership skills still apply, only the stakes are up and you have to raise your game because what you could get away with in person, that kind of sloppiness gets worse when we're dealing with having everyone working from home and remotely. You've really got to be that much more intentional about every aspect of your leadership. And if you think, oh my gosh, I didn't realize that's what my job was. 
that was your job before. You just were getting away with Good it. Point. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, so the book, great book, you guys, because you know we we need to create a movement. Everybody out there listening, we need to go into the teams that we're on, and that includes our families, the nonprofits we work at whether we're going into an office right now, whether we're partially remote, fully remote, I don't know, but guess what? This has given us an opportunity to change how we lead. So the book is Cracking the Leadership Code. Alain Hunkins, A-L-A-I-N, that's the French pronunciation, which I think is really cool. Yep. And where else can they connect with you and find you, Alain? Yeah, sure. So probably the easiest place to go, the book has its own website, which is www.crackingtheleadershipcode.com, which will link you right to the book page, which is a subset of my website. And while you're there, you can learn all about the book as well as download the first chapter of the book for free. So you can check out that and get a little preview of that. And then from there, you can go to my website and you can see all my various blogs, articles, as well as if you have any questions about any of the other coaching and consulting and leadership training services that I offer. Awesome. So as we kind of wrap this up along, what final thoughts would you like to lead, you know, just leave with everybody out there listening? Yeah, well, leadership is not a sprint. It's a marathon. But the best way to take that marathon on is to think, how can you keep learning? I think it's a marathon of learning. I was just talking to somebody before we got on here, I was coaching. And I was saying how we all have the opportunity to learn from experience. Like our lives are filled with experience. And what I notice is that some people might have 20 years of experience and somebody else has one year of experience 20 times because they're not learning <laughs> and reflecting right. on what it is they're learning from. So I'd say be intentional, especially right now, be intentional about what are you learning and being that self-aware reflective leader because your ability to grow and develop is really only as good as your ability to become more self-aware and to put on the hat of being a learner. Mm, love that. Put on the hat of being a learner. Thank you so much for what you're doing, your message, Alon. And I look forward to our next conversation, my friend. And I just really encourage everybody out there to plug into what Alon is doing. And, and if you get to the Netherlands, look him up. Maybe you can grab a cup of coffee here down the road when things uh, get better. Great. Thanks, John. It's been such a pleasure talking with you today. Thank you. Yeah, I agree. You're awesome.